of your Bibles, you can open up to 1 Samuel chapter 30. First Samuel chapter 30, we're going to be looking at all 31 verses. We're continuing on with the story of David's rise to the throne of Israel. The last scene involving David here in the book of 1 Samuel. We're going to continue on just straight into 2 Samuel. First and 2 Samuel are really just one book, Samuel. We split it up because when we translated it into English, we thought there's no way people could handle 55 chapters of narrative, so we made it into two books. It's really just one book. So we're going to keep going after the end of 1 Samuel into 2 Samuel. So today we're in chapter 30. I invite you to follow along with me as we read. This is what the Holy Spirit says to the church, beginning in verse 1. Now when David and his men came to Ziklag on the third day, the Amalekites had made a raid against the Negev and against Ziklag. They had overcome Ziklag and burned it with fire, and taken captive the women and all who were in it, both small and great. They killed no one, but carried them off and went their way. And when David and his men came to the city, they found it burned with fire, and their wives and sons and daughters taken captive. Then David and the people who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. David's two wives also had been taken captive, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. And David was greatly distressed. For the people spoke of stoning him, because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. And David said to Abiathar the priest, the son of Ahimelech, Bring me the ephod. So Abiathar brought the ephod to David, and David inquired of the Lord, Shall I pursue after this band? Shall I overtake them? He answered him, Pursue, for you shall surely overtake them and shall rescue. So David set out, and the six hundred men who were with him, and they came to the brook Besor, where those who were left behind stayed. But David pursued he and four hundred men. Two hundred stayed behind who were too exhausted to cross the brook Besor. They found an Egyptian in the open country and brought him to David. And they gave him bread and he ate. They gave him water to drink and they gave him a piece of a cake of figs and two clusters of raisins. And when he had eaten, his spirit revived, for he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. And David said to him, To whom do you belong and where are you from? He said, I am a young man of Egypt, servant to an Amalekite. And my master left me behind because I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid against the Negeb of the Cherethites and against that which belongs to Judah and against the Negeb of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. And David said to him, Will you take me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will take you down to this band. And when he had taken him down, behold, they were spread abroad over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing because of all the great spoil they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. And David struck them down from twilight until the evening of the next day, and not a man of them escaped, except four hundred men who mounted camels and fled. David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken, and David rescued his two wives. Nothing was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that had been taken. David brought back all. 
David also captured all the flocks and herds, and the people drove the livestock before him, and they said, This is David's spoil. Then David came to the two hundred men who had been too exhausted to follow David, who had been left at the brook Besser. And they went out to meet David and to meet the people who were with him. And when David came near to the people, he greeted them. Then all the wicked and worthless fellows among the men who had not gone with David said, Because they did not go with us, we will not give them any of the spoil that we have recovered, except that each man may lead away his wife and children and depart. But David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hands the band that came against us. Who would listen to you in this matter? For as his share is who goes down into the battle, so shall his share be who stays by the baggage. They shall share alike. And he made it a statute and a rule for Israel from that day forward to this day. When David came to Ziklag, he sent part of the spoil to his friends, the elders of Judah, saying, Here is a present for you from the spoil of the enemies of the Lord. It was for those in Bethel, in Ramoth of the Negev, in Jatir, in Aor, in Sifmoth, in Eshtimoa, in Rakal, in the cities of the Jehermalites, in the cities of the Kenites, in Horma, in Borashan, in Athak, in Hebron, for all the places where David and his men had roamed. Brothers and sisters, this is the word of the Lord given to us for our good. Let's pray now and ask God to bless the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, we give You thanks that You are the God who speaks. We pray now that You would give us ears of faith to listen to Your Word here from 1 Samuel chapter 30. Help us to hear, Father, with faith. Help us to respond with believing obedience. Father, give me grace to speak things that are true and faithful to the Scriptures. Give Your people discernment that they might know the truth from error. And we pray, Father, that today would be another instance of grace upon grace where You hold us fast as we wait for the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray in His name and for His glory. Amen. Sixty miles. Sixty miles. That's how far David and his men had to travel to get back home. Sixty miles is a long walk. But for David and his men, it was very likely a welcome journey. Remember how things looked just one chapter earlier. Chapter 29. David faced a terrible dilemma. He was marching with the Philistines into battle against Israel of all people. And there was seemingly no way out for David. But mercifully, as we saw last week, the Lord met David in his dilemma and delivered him from certain catastrophe. So, considering where things were headed just one chapter earlier, those 60 miles might as well have been a stroll in the park for David and his men. Every mile that passed meant they were further from danger and one step closer to finding relief at home. Then we read chapter 30 and we realize there would be no relief. It's a vivid passage, isn't it? We're separated from David by years of history and culture, and yet you can readily imagine as you read the weight and the emotion, especially of these 
opening verses. Just try to picture it in your mind. One minute you have this band of men laughing and anticipating a reunion with their loved ones. And then the next minute their laughter stops as they see black smoke billowing on the horizon. That's where our home is. They've already marched 60 miles, but you can bet that they covered that last half mile pretty fast. And as they crest that last rise before home, their fears are confirmed. Their homes are burned. All of their possessions are gone. All of them. And worst of all, their families are gone. There would be no relief in Ziklag. There's simply nothing left. I mean, you can feel the weight of the moment, right? And you might expect that this would be the breaking point for David. Don't don't make him into a superhero. He's a human being like you and me. And you might expect this would be the breaking point for David. Think of all the hardship he's already been through. He's on the run for his life. He's living in caves. He's scavenging for provisions. He was just on the brink of catastrophe. And when it seemed like relief would finally come, the bottom drops out in chapter 30. We might expect him to crumble. We might expect him to throw up his hands in despair and cry out, what do you want from me, God? What do you want from me? Why is it wave after wave of hardship? I mean, we might expect him to crumble. But our expectation would be wrong. Instead of being David's breaking point, 1 Samuel 30 is David's turning point. The disaster in Ziklag does not lead David to despair. It's just the opposite. The disaster seems to bring him to his senses and drive him back to the Lord. What a striking turnaround it is from where David has been to where we find him now. Of all the places for David to recover his trust in the Lord, it's in the rubble of his home. The rubble of Ziklag is where David's heart begins to shine again. And it shines here most brightly. And therein lies the value of the passage for us. Remember, whenever we study the Old Testament, we're always seeking to build a bridge from the Old Testament to us so that the truth of the text gets transported into our lives. Here's the value, here's the bridge from 1 Samuel 30 to us. I think it would be fair to say that at some point in the Christian life, you're going to have a ziklag moment. You're going to have a ziklag moment. It's not going to be that the Amalekites burned your home or that your family was taken hostage, but there will come a point when you say, I cannot take one more hardship, God. I can't take another one. There will come a point when you think, I'm finally going to get some relief. And you crest that last rise and it's just rubble. Those days are coming. If they're not already here. Those days are coming and they're real. And they are overwhelming. But the teaching of this chapter is that there is a way to walk by faith in the rubble of Ziklag. There is a way to walk by faith. There is a way to find your confidence in the Lord renewed even in the face of another disaster. And that way is found by looking to the work of a sovereign God who meets His people in the rubble and sustains their faith to the end. Don't miss this, friends. God doesn't wait for David to get himself out of the rubble before he shows up. God meets David in the rubble. There is a way to walk by faith in those Ziklag 
moments. And it's found by looking to the work of a sovereign God. So that's what I'd like to draw your attention to during our time here in 1 Samuel 30. This chapter gives us three pictures of God's work in David's life. Three ways that God was shaping David to persevere in the faith. The first is found in verses 1-10. to God's promise provides refuge. God's promise provides refuge. We've already noted the distress that begins the passage in verses 1-3. to A city devastated, possessions lost, families nowhere to be found. But it's, chapter, it's verse 4 that captures the heartache of the moment. Look again at this gut-wrenching verse. Then David and the men who were with him raised their voices and wept until they had no more strength to weep. It's heartbreaking, isn't it? These are grown men. These are mighty warriors. These are guys who can hold their own in a fight. And they're sitting in the ashes crying until they have nothing left to give. It's gut-wrenching. And as bad as it is, it actually gets worse in verse 6. And David was greatly distressed for the people spoke of stoning him because all the people were bitter in soul, each for his sons and daughters. So David's already lost his family. He's already lost his home. And now he stands to lose his men and probably his own life. And if we're honest, we can understand why these men are upset. It's not hard to imagine their accusations. If you hadn't brought us here, David, this wouldn't have happened. If you hadn't deceived Akish, we wouldn't have had to go to that stupid battle. This is your fault, David. And you're going to pay with your life. It's not hard to imagine their accusations. And so David's distress is now doubled. He's lost everything, and now it appears it's going to cost him his life. Then comes the turning point of the passage. Actually, I would say it's the turning point of the last six chapters of the book. This is the turning point at the end. What will David do in his distress? Where will he turn? Notice the end of verse 6. But David strengthened himself in the Lord his God. A crisis reveals character. And here in this incredible moment of crisis, David's character is revealed. David has nothing left. He knows he has nothing to answer this distress on his own. He's lost. He's weak. But, and this is the key, David's desperation drives him to God, not away from God. Do you see it, friends? At the end of himself, where does David go? He turns to God for strength. So, catch the contrast then between David and Saul. It's been building over the last few chapters and it comes to a head here in verse 6. You'll notice that word distress in verse 6. It's only used four times in the book of 1 Samuel. And the last time it was used was by Saul in chapter 28 when he said, I'm in great distress. So now the author's using that word again as a little verbal cue to get your attention to say, hey, pay attention, look how they're different. Where did Saul turn in his distress? Well, he turned to witchcraft. Where does David turn in his distress? He turns to the Lord his God. Don't miss that personal pronoun, the Lord his God. That's the difference between Saul and David. Saul didn't know the Lord. The things of the Lord were always academic to Saul. Never personal. 
Saul had no heart for God, which is why he found silence in his hour of distress. But David is different. David knows the Lord by faith. God is his God. The Lord is his refuge. Friends, if you don't have a personal pronoun in front of your address to God, then you need to think about the state of your soul today. It's not enough just to know the things of the Lord academically. The Lord has to be your God. My God. His God. Her God. You see, David's not perfect. This is the difference between David and Saul. David is not perfect, but he is a man after God's own heart because he knows God by faith. That's what that means. In the moment of distress, David strengthens himself in his God. Still, let's press it just a bit further. Let's just just linger here on verse 6 and just press this a bit further. What exactly does it mean to strengthen yourself in God? That sounds like one of those great Christian phrases that we use all the time and we never define. You just need to strengthen yourself in God, friend. Okay, well, what does that mean? What does it mean exactly? On the surface, it's easy enough to understand. It means David didn't depend on himself. Right? It's easy enough. But is there more we could say? Can we press it a little further? Can we zero in a little bit more with some precise application? Well, yes, we can. And when we do, we find that there are two specific biblical connections that show us what it means to strengthen ourselves in God. Remember, Scripture always interprets Scripture. So if we want to press this a little bit further, we can look to the Bible to help us, and the Bible does. The first connection is found by looking backwards in the book to chapter 23. You don't have to turn there. I'll, just, I'll remind you of what happened in chapter 23. David was hemmed in on all sides by enemies. And Saul was closing in on David. And he seemingly had no way out. He was literally trapped next to a mountain. And then Saul was on the other side. Nowhere to go. And then at that last moment, Jonathan, David's faithful friend, arrived. And Scripture says that Jonathan strengthened David in God. You see, it's the same word. He strengthened him. But here's the, here's the key. How did Jonathan strengthen David? By pointing him to the promises of God. By pointing him to the promises of God. You remember, Jonathan said to David, you will be the king, brother. God promised you, you will be the king. So my father can't touch you. Because God promised. So here in chapter 30, that's what David does He strengthens himself by looking to the promises of God. What does it mean to strengthen yourself in God? It means, first of all, that we remember His promises. The second connection is found by looking forward. We just looked back. Now we're going to look forward to verse 7. Notice what David does in verse 7. He calls for Abiathar, the priest, and the ephod. Remember, the priest and the ephod were divinely approved means of knowing God's will. In the Old Testament, this was one of the ways God spoke to His people through a priestly mediator. And that's exactly what happens here in verse 8. David asks a specific question, should I go after these people? And the Lord gives him a specific answer. Yes, go after them. So catch what has happened here, friends. Where exactly has David gone in his distress? He's gone into the presence of God. He's gone into the presence of God. And by divine revelation, he has heard the Word of God. On the basis of that Word, David takes action. Notice verse 9. 
David obeys the Word from God and in faith he sets out to recover his people. So, with those two connections in mind, one looking back, one looking forward, we can now put this all together. What does it mean to strengthen yourself in God? It means means that you remember God's promises and then you go boldly into God's presence. In times of distress, that's how God's people find strength. That's the recipe for perseverance. Remember God's promises, enter God's presence. Now, you might be thinking to yourself at this point, wait a second, Jeff. I don't have a promise like David had. God never told me I was going to be the king. And if you haven't noticed, I don't have any priests around that can bring ephods and tell me what to do. So, how does all of this help me? Because I don't have what David had. And you're right. David was unique. Utterly unique. You don't have what David had. You have something better. Remember, friends, don't miss this. You you will miss the whole chapter if you miss this. You don't have to listen to anything else I say, but listen to this. Don't miss this. If you belong to Christ by faith, you have something better. You have a better promise. The promise of the Gospel. You have a better priest. The Lord Jesus Christ who has passed through the heavens and is seated now at the right hand of God. You have a better Word. The finished, inerrant, inspired Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. You don't have what David had because God has given you something better. And therefore, you can do what David does here in verse 6. Whatever the distress, you can strengthen yourself in the Lord your God. Friends, this is the Father's provision to His people in the Gospel. He has given us His unbreakable promises, and on the strength of those promises, you can come boldly into God's presence. There's no other recipe. Promises and presence. You, You take hold of them. Time wouldn't allow us to go into all of these gospel promises, but we, we, can't, we can't actually keep going without just a little bit of a reminder. So just a minute. What do we have in the gospel? We have the promise of everlasting forgiveness that God will remember our sins no more. We have the promise of the indwelling Spirit who enables us to know and do God's will. We have the promise that God will certainly finish His work in us We have the promise that the gates of hell will not prevail against God's church. We have the promise of Christ's very soon return. And we have the promise of eternal fellowship with God in the new heavens and in the new earth. Brothers and sisters, it's safe to say those promises are strong enough to answer whatever distress you're facing. I don't know what it is, but I know these promises are strong enough. Those are unbreakable promises bought with the blood of Christ and sealed by the Holy Spirit for you. And therefore, we can say with confidence that the Father has made every provision for us to find our strength in Him. You will never have a ziklag moment that can outpace God's provision to you in the Gospel. Whatever the rubble is. You lose your home, you lose your job, you lose your spouse, you lose your child. Whatever the rubble is, it will never outpace God's provision to you in the Gospel. You can strengthen yourself in God by remembering His promises and then going into His presence. So what's left for us to do? Well, quite simply, all that's left is to walk by faith and to strengthen ourselves in the Lord our God. 
Friends, the Christian life, it doesn't get any snazzier than this. There's no like secret recipe that all the strong Christians are holding out on giving us. This is what it is. Promises of God, presence of God. Both of them embraced by faith. And if that just feels really normal and everyday-ish, then welcome to being a Christian. Because that's how you live. Learn from David's experience here. And remember that you have something better than David. When that next ziklag moment comes, remember God's promises, run to God's presence, and find your strength in the Lord your God. Amazingly, friends, that's only the first picture. Don't you love the Bible? I love the Bible. First Sam- when was the last time you read 1 Samuel 30? When was the last time you read about Amalekites killing people and you said, I'm going to be encouraged by this? I love the Bible. It is amazing to me that there is a gold mine of encouragement in this passage. So let's keep going. We have more to see. The second picture of God's work in David's life comes in verses 11 to 15. God's word proves true. God's word proves true. David sets out with his men in verse 9. And in verse 10... We see how, just how driven David is at this point. There's, there's no stopping. 200 men get tired, so David simply leaves them behind by the brook. Just stay here. He and the rest keep going. There's no stopping. Now, you have to remember that David has God's Word at this point, but that's all that he has. We actually know more than David does at this point in, in the story. David doesn't know he's chasing Amalekites. David doesn't know where they went. David doesn't even know if his family is alive. All he has is God's Word that said, go. That's all he has. But then notice what happens beginning in verse 11. David finds some unexpected help. His men bring him an Egyptian they found out in the wilderness, which on its own is strange enough. You normally wouldn't find individuals wandering alone in the wilderness. If they were by themselves, you would just find their bones because you don't survive. But then it gets even more unusual, or we should say even more providential. After feeding the Egyptian, David finds out the man belonged to an Amalekite. And this Amalekite was part of a band that raided and burned, wait for it, Ziklag. Ziklag, David's home. So do you see what God has done here, friends? In His providence, God has worked to fulfill His Word. David has no idea where he's going. David doesn't even know where to look. He's wandering around in the desert. He doesn't even know where to find these people. So in His providence, God provides a guide for David's quest. God works to fulfill His Word. This is not the first time we've seen God's providence at work in 1 Samuel. I like how one scholar has put it. The doctrine of God's providence is the atmosphere of the book. It's, it's so pervasive. It's just like the air that we breathe. We don't always notice it because it's just always there. But let's slow down here and think a minute more about this pervasive providence in verse 11. Think about everything the Lord had to do in order to make this encounter happen. Think about the level of detail God had to arrange in order to fulfill His Word. He had to make sure that the Egyptian got sick at just the right time. Not too soon, not too late. He had to make sure that the the cruel Amalekite left the Egyptian at just this spot. 
then he had to ensure that David would take this particular route and not one of the limitless other options he could have chosen. God had to keep the Egyptian alive for three days without food and water in the desert. And then he had to make sure that David had enough extra provisions to nurse the Egyptian back to health. Friends, that's only scratching the surface. We could talk about weather conditions, time of day, angle of the sun so that you can see things off in the distance, and on and on we could go. So when I say that God's providence brought this about, I don't mean generally. I mean specifically, meticulously, purposefully, so that nothing was left to chance and everything worked just the way God wanted it to. That's the doctrine of God's providence, brothers and sisters. It's the air we breathe and it's glorious. And why has God done this? Why has He purposefully ordered this specific encounter for this particular time? Why did He do it? In order to keep His Word to His servant. In order to do good to His servant, David. You see, at its heart, the doctrine of God's providence is a display of God's goodness. It's a display of God's goodness. When we see God's providence in passages like this, we're seeing not just the, the power of the Creator, we're seeing the hand of a Father. A Heavenly Father working everything for the good of His children. Brothers and sisters, do you think of God's providence like that as the hand of your heavenly Father working and orchestrating whatever is needed in order to fulfill His Word and do you good? Remember, we have a better Word than David. We have the Word of Christ in the Gospel inspired in the Scriptures of the Old and New Testaments. And the same God who worked to fulfill His Word to David is now working to keep His Word to you and to me. And if God can make sure that an Egyptian gets ill and left behind at just the right spot, then He can do whatever it takes to keep His Word to you. The Father will not fail, brothers and sisters. He is sovereign over all things. And His providence reaches to the most minute of details. And it reaches there for our good in Christ. And therefore, we can do as David did in this passage. We can trust God's Word. We can trust God's Word. Even when all we have is His Word, we can trust Him. Listen, friends, so often in the Christian life, you're going to find yourself where all you have is God's Word. That's all you've got. You have no idea how you're going to make it out of this situation. You have no idea how the things that it says in here are going to end up being true. All you have is God's Word. And yet, even in that moment, when all you have is what God has said, you can trust the Father. You can trust the Father because you know here, He's showing you, I'm always working in 10,000 ways to fulfill My Word and do you good. That's what He's saying from 1 Samuel 30. When all you have is My Word, you can trust Me. It always proves true because our sovereign God is always working to bring His Word to pass. Nothing that happens to you is random. Nothing that happens to you is wasted doesn't make it all easy, but it does make it good in the end. And therefore, we can trust this God whose word always proves true. Picture number three of God's work in David's life. Verses 16 to 25. 
God's grace produces fruit. God's grace produces fruit. The abandoned Egyptian proves to be a reliable guide. And in verse 16, he takes David to the Amalekite camp. The Amalekites, for their part, make this an easy fight. They don't even bother posting guards because they're too busy partying. So in verse 17, David just rides in and wins. He reclaims everything that belongs to him, and it's not even much of a fight. But what's striking is that the description of the battle emphasizes only David. We know he's got 400 men with him, but the text is only talking about David. Notice it again with me, starting in verse 17. There's no mention of David's men, just David. David struck them down, verse 17. David recovered all. David rescued his wives, verse 18. David brought back all, verse 19. David captured all the flocks and herds, verse 20. You see the emphasis? The author wants us to see this as David's victory. Sure, his men helped. I'm sure that they did. But the author doesn't tell us about that. He just shows us there at the front, leading in faith, Israel's future king. He's rescuing the people and he receives the credit. In fact, the conclusion of verse 20 makes this very clear. The people drove the livestock before him and said, this is David's spoil. So there's no mistaking it. Through faith in God's word, David has turned the grief of Ziklag into the joy of reunion. And that's what makes the following scene so alarming. Notice what happens in verse 22. David and his men join back up with the 200 men who were left behind. You remember these were the guys that were too tired to keep going. So they stayed back to guard the bags. And upon the reunion, however, some of the worthless fellows decide they're not sharing. Again, it's not hard to understand their thinking. If you didn't fight the battle, then you don't get any spoil from the battle. You can have your family, but that's it. We did the work, so we get the reward. What's so striking here is how greedy these men have become. I mean, we just saw that the victory belonged to whom? To David. Yet here, these worthless fellows are acting like they're the heroes. You see, that's why the text is narrated the way that it is. The worthless fellows are a picture of human nature. This is what we're like. We don't do any of the work, but we want all the glory. We don't want to have gratitude. We just respond with greed. We get a little taste, and then we want everything. David, however, steps in, and his response shines brightly with the power of God's grace. Notice what David says in verse 23. David said, You shall not do so, my brothers, with what the Lord has given us. He has preserved us and given into our hand the band that came against us. What a difference in perspective. David did lead in battle, yet he claims no credit. In fact, David puts the emphasis entirely where it should be, on the work of God. It was God who gave them the victory, not David. It was God who restored their families, not David. This entire episode has been a display of God's grace to the undeserving. And now that grace bears incredible fruit in David's life. Notice verse 24. David gives generously everyone a share in the spoil. Friends, that is the fruit of grace. David recognizes God's grace at work in this moment, and in response to that grace, David gives generously. Now, understand, 
I know that we're tempted to just jump to the generosity and say, hey everybody, be like David. Be generous. But that's actually not the point. That's not the point. David's generosity is pointing to something greater. Yes, his generosity is commendable. Yes, it honors the Lord. Yes, it shows love to his neighbor. But this is the key. Where did all that fruit come from? From the recognition of God's grace. From the recognition of God's grace. Brothers and sisters, what I want us to grasp here is that the pathway to spiritual fruit in our lives always begins with the confession that we live by grace alone. So I could stand up here and say, be like David, be generous, and that would be misusing the text. Instead, I'm going to stand up here and and say, recognize that you live only by God's grace. Everything you have and everything you are is from God's grace if you belong to Christ. And then notice the difference that this makes. If everything I have and everything I am owes to God's grace, then I'm free to give it all away for the glory of God and for the good of others. If I don't own anything that I have, and if I don't even claim a right over my own life, then I'm free. I'm free to live for God and for others. I'm entirely a product of God's grace. If you belong to Christ by faith, then that's your confession. Everything I am is because of God's grace. When that truth begins to sink down into your soul and shape who you are, the result is God-honoring fruit that does good to others. There's a reason why Galatians 5 says it's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of what? The Spirit who gives grace. Who gives grace. In one sense, we should live every moment of our lives with the words of the Apostle Paul ringing in our ears. What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that you didn't receive from God? We would be a different people if we woke up each day and before our feet hit the floor, we reminded ourselves, I live entirely by grace alone. I live entirely by grace alone. So let's do that, brothers and sisters. Let's pray and ask God to give us a greater awareness of our dependence on His grace and an even greater awareness of how abundantly He has given us that grace in Christ. I don't want to overstate things as a pastor, I don't want to make it sound like there's ever a silver bullet to a church growing or to you growing or to God being glorified. There is no silver bullet. It's just long, hard work of walking by faith, not by sight. So I don't want to overstate anything. But I do want to say that this would make a monumental difference in our church and in our homes and in our neighborhoods and in our workplaces if we lived each day saying, what do I have that I did not receive? And if I received it, then I'm free to give it away for the glory of God and for the good of my neighbor. That's where spiritual fruit comes from, friends. It comes from God's grace. It comes from the recognition and the confession that we live by grace alone. That's what David is showing us here. So may we be people who live daily with that confession. What do I have that I did not receive? And if I received it, then I'm free to give it. 1 Samuel 30 is a turning point. It's in the rubble of Ziklag that we see God working in David's life in mighty ways. God's promise provides strength. God's word proves true. And God's grace produces fruit. There's one final encouragement I'd like us to see. And we'll close with this. 
Notice the final paragraph of the chapter, verses 26 to 31. David takes the treasure that he has won and he distributes it to God's people. He shares the victory with those who didn't even fight. David fought and the people benefited. David trusted God's word and the people received good things as a result. On one level, this is just smart politics. David knows he's about to be the king. And so he's going to win favor with the people that he's about to rule. On one level, it's just good political strategy. On another level, though, this is more than smart politics. Zoom out a little bit and see this last paragraph in light of the entire storyline of the Bible. What exactly is happening here? God's anointed king generously gives gifts to God's chosen people. The king fought and the people were blessed. The king was mighty in battle and the people tasted the richness of his victory. It's a stirring final picture, isn't it? The king fighting and the people benefiting. It's enough to make you think of another king who fought another battle, a much greater battle. 1 Samuel 30 takes us all the way to the battlefield of Calvary where David's greater son, the Lord Jesus Christ, reclaimed what was his and then freely shared it with his people. It's the hope of the gospel, brothers and sisters, and it echoes out in David's victory. God has given his people a king. That king has fought the battle and that king has won. And so writing centuries later, the Apostle John would describe the king's victory with these words, and from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. And on the great final day, there will be a procession going into that heavenly city, and at the front, everyone will say, this is Jesus' spoil. This is Jesus' treasure. May we rejoice in our King, and may we live every day in the recognition that what we have received from Him is just grace upon grace. Amen? Let's pray.